turning your Bibles or, or scrolling your devices to Acts chapter 16, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 16 this morning. Uh, it's not a long text, and so I'm going to read all the way through it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll go through it again in smaller and more easily digestible uh, chunks. So just please follow along in your head as we go. Um, <clears throat> so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, we remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And that's the word of the Lord. Let's bow. Father, we thank you for the chance to be here this morning. Um, people are looking a little sleepy. We just pray that you help us uh, to be ready to receive the word, Father. Um, I ask that we're a good soil. I ask that there will be fruit born out of this, and uh, Lord, for anyone today who is uh, who's sick or traveling, whatever the case may be, we pray that you uh, will help them also to be with us in spirit, um, to have to take the opportunity today to worship you, uh, to hear something from your word, and uh, to respond to it in their spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, just a reminder for those of you who are new, um, the reason there are smaller pictures that are kind of semi-hidden in the background of these slides is in order that the kids can find them for a sermon bingo, okay? So in case you're, you're like, why is, why is Jesus in that slide? Oops, I gave it away. Um, that's, <laughs> it's, in today's case, all but one of the pictures from the bingo sheet are hidden in the PowerPoint, and so the youngins who try to find it can come up after service, and they can raid the treasure chest here. Um, and also for older kids and ADD adults like myself, if you, if you need something a little extra to stay engaged, the underlined words in the PowerPoints are also uh, answers to today's crosswords and word find. And so if you're like, I didn't see those, they're sitting right back there on that big wooden counter. So if you are a child or an ADD adult and you would like to go grab one, go for it. Or an ADD child. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, it's good. So uh, for those of you taking notes or if you just like to know what you're going to hear before you hear it, um, I believe that today's passage reveals a, a pretty simple outline of the ingredients that bring a person to faith in Jesus Christ and also kind of tell us what faithfulness can and probably should look like in a believer. And so uh, I checked out several different commentaries, you know, trying to kind of get a good feel for what happened here. I'm, I'm convinced that this is a real powerhouse of a passage. I think there's a lot more here than we'd normally get from a quick read. So with that in mind, um, let's jump back into that first couple of verses. Luke wrote, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. And he says, And we remained there for some days. Uh, that's a lot of names, right? Does anybody remember what's been going on with... Uh, with the last few messages, that the last, you know, several verses, nobody. Great, good to know. Um, 
So remember, Paul and Barnabas, they'd gone on a missionary journey together. It was what we think of as Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, And they were planning to go on a second trip, and then they had a disagreement over this one particular guy. His name was John Mark. They they were disagreeing about whether to bring him along. And so they split up. They went uh, went their separate ways. And uh, Barnabas actually took John Mark. We find out later that he becomes very useful to Paul in his ministry. But in the meantime, Paul starts his second missionary journey, and he's got Silas with him who was one of the prophets from Jerusalem, and he also has uh, his buddy Timothy, who's kind of his protege, and and Luke. Um, We don't know how many others may have been with him, but at least those four were apparently on this trip. So he left from um, Antioch, Pisidia, and he headed north and across modern-day Turkey. And in the last few verses, uh, remember, the Holy Spirit was guiding Paul and Silas, uh, and also, you know, Timothy and Luke, to the next stage in their journey. Now remember, they weren't allowed to preach, while going through Asia Minor, and they were pretend, uh, prevented excuse me, from entering Bithynia, which is one of those names that just sounds fake to me. <laughs> it's, but, uh, and the Spirit pointed them in the direction of Macedonia. Do you remember how God led them to Macedonia? Anybody? A dr- well, close. A vision, right. I had a dream this morning uh, before I, obviously, before I woke up, Um, very different from a vision. You have a dream when you're asleep. You have a vision when you're awake. So they had a vision with a man, Paul had a vision with a man saying, come, come to us, we need your help. And so that's how they determined that they were supposed to go there. So anyway, I know some of you folks appreciate, um, you know, when we're talking about geography, you want a map, so here you go. Um, They had kind of crossed that big section of Asia. Bithynia was kind of this this section up here. You see that little curve? Um, Bithynia was kind of up that direction. And so they cut across Asia and... um, they got to, uh, to Troas, and then they went across Samothrace, that little island there. Um, so this, everything that we're reading about kind of happened in that little circle. Um, and then they continued across uh, the Aegean Sea. They ended up at Neapolis, and then Philippi was really close by. Um, you can kind of see that that's only about, like, you know, 10 miles, so it was probably just a, a real quick partial day's walk over to Philippi. So, and it says they stayed there for a few days. Um, and... Uh, you know, you've heard of Philippi, by the way. That's where Paul started a church, and he wrote what book? Philippians. All right, good. Uh, that church ended up being very healthy, by the way, in a lot of ways. Um, he, uh, he started the church there, and, of course, he wrote Philippians from prison. And uh, it was a fairly major city. It had a whole lot of Gentiles in it, and as well as some Jewish converts. We probably think Lydia was one of those. So, so they stayed there for a while, and, and that section of Scripture is kind of a backdrop for what we're about to read. Um, so, so they're in the region of Philippi for the rest of this story. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. I, I want to pause there, okay? Uh, and most of Acts so far, when the apostles are talking to people on the Sabbath day, where are they? In the synagogues, exactly. Um, and so... You know, in Acts chapter 2, they start out in the temple area, and everywhere since then, it's been in the synagogue, which is essentially the, a Jewish local church, is how we would probably be able to, to make that connection in our minds. So every major town, and even some smaller towns, would have a synagogue, and that was the place where the Jews would get together and do their worship on the Sabbath day. Um, and because they're preaching a message that was generally aimed at Jews, who'd been looking for God's Messiah to come, and since they were preaching about that very person being Jesus Christ, um, you know, they, it was a natural thing that they would go to, you know, the religious gatherings where Jews would be, 
right? And when they would teach them uh, how all of the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament were fulfilled in this one guy, this one man. And in this, this Sabbath day, though, it's possible that they didn't go to a synagogue. It's also possible, bless you, my son. It's also possible uh, that, they, that they went to um, a synagogue and then they went later to the river. Um, maybe there wasn't even one in Philippi. We don't know. It was mainly a Gentile city. But either way, their party went just outside the city, uh, you know, the city proper. They went outside the gate. And they went to this riverside. Why? Because Paul wrote, we supposed it to be a place of prayer. And it makes sense that they would want to go to a place where people were already gathering that were showing an interest in the Lord, right? Okay, so one, uh, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now, Lydia is kind of our, our character study for today. And so we're going to examine her pretty closely. Why was Lydia out there? What's that? Selling goods? Why was she out there right at this particular time, you think? Seeking God, she was praying. Okay, If there was a synagogue in that city, then it's likely that, that women would have been allowed to gather for worship there, but they would have been separated from the men. They wouldn't have been allowed in the inner court. Um, and, and perhaps there wasn't a synagogue at that time, not sure. Uh, and, the, and the Jewish people... Some of them, at least, and he says the women gathered there. So Jewish women would gather on the Sabbath to pray at the riverside, maybe as some sort of unofficial synagogue, right? And, and whatever the case may be, Paul and his group, they went out there to join them, and that is where they met Lydia. And Luke says she was a seller of purple goods. I didn't even think about it. It is quite possible that she was out there for that purpose at that time, um, don't know. I mean, it, that was big business at the time, you know. So, um, but I, I think she was probably there for the purpose of prayer. Uh, even so, I know sometimes people network at church a little bit. So, who knows what she was doing exactly? Um, but we know that purple cloth, being a seller of purple goods, it was really expensive, and it wasn't expensive so much because of the cloth, which was already kind of expensive, but because of the dye. To make purple dye uh, was difficult, and it was expensive. And so, uh, if you wore purple it likely made you look like a rich person. That was considered kind of a symbol of wealth. So like Barney the Dinosaur would have been Bill Gates back then. If, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean that Lydia was a wealthy woman, but I think it's likely. But that, that's not the main point. Um, based on Luke's description, I feel like Lydia had one of the, the important ingredients in the recipe for faith and faithfulness, and that is receptivity. Receptivity. What, what does that mean? She was receptive to the Lord's work. In other words, she was open to God. And so we're going to talk about uh, later where that re receptivity actually comes from. But for now, we're going to focus on the scriptural evidence that Lydia's, her spiritual antenna was up, so to speak. And first we see she was involved with an assembly. She was with like-minded people. You know, the Riverside was a place that, that people, specifically women, at least in this description, gathered together. And the reason that they gathered is important, too, you know. Uh, let, let's not ignore the fact, though, that they were gathered. This is not a, a Lone Ranger scenario for Lydia. She had apparently made an effort to connect with other people uh, who had a similar focus. 
Now, you guys all know that, that really people can gather for all sorts of reasons, you know, that have nothing to do with faith. But typically when people do gather together, it's a result of a shared interest, right? You know, some of you guys play those games that involve lots and lots of people, and, you know, some of y'all have a thing for pickleball or whatever, uh, and you like to get together with other folks, and, and you, have a, you have a common interest that draws you together. Add that to the fact that they were meeting together uh, for a specific action that befits people who are spiritually receptive. They gathered for prayer, which a person is probably not likely to do unless they're seeking the Lord or, or at least attempting to seek some kind of understanding of the Lord, maybe their own understanding of the Lord. Now, again, this is not an indicator of salvation. I want to make that clear, okay? But this is evidence of receptivity. For instance, all over the world, all over the world, there are people who pray to false gods that are not in any way related to the God of the Bible. You know, Muslims pray to a, a false version of God named Allah. Uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses pray to a false god that's a created being, has the same name, but a different, different god. Hindus pray to uh, literally hundreds of false gods. So this is, this, is, you know, this is not a sign of salvation. However, Prayer shows important evidence of receptivity in that they recognize the existence of a higher power outside of themselves and their dependence on it. Catch that? To pray says, I believe there is something greater than me, and I am in some way dependent on that being. Now, of course, the, the content of one's prayers also indicate much about their heart, right? Right? And we're not given more information on that front. So, um, and since, you know, since we're not given that information, we're going to go with what Scripture tells us specifically about Lydia. Luke says that she was a worshiper of God. A worshiper of God. Now, in the Greek construction of the sentence, I'm not going to get into all the words. I'm just going to tell you the definite article is there before the word God, meaning this is an indication that, that Luke is saying she was a worshiper of the one true God. Now, this brings up a couple of questions. First of all, how can she worship the true God if she's not a Christian? It's the first big question. And secondly, does it mean that she was already saved because she worshiped the Lord, although she apparently didn't know Christ? I think both questions can be answered by looking in Romans 10 and 11. Remember, Paul spends a lot of ink okay, explaining that, that Jewish non-Christians had a passion for the Lord but without knowledge. And that they weren't saved because they were trying to gain salvation by following the law rather than accepting that it is by grace through faith. So while it's fair to say, apparently, that unbelieving Jews worship the same God as Christians, they don't have salvation. They don't have salvific understanding. But there is certainly an advantage to having the right attitude as a worshiper of God. Because worship... Guys, worship in its purest form is an outpouring of the heart. For a person to be a worshiper of God, whether a Gentile like Cornelius from Acts 10, we read some of that story this morning, uh, or a Jewish convert, which Lydia apparently was, that receptivity is evidence that God is drawing him, maybe drawing that person to himself. It's not proof, but it's evidence, okay? In a moment, we'll talk about the fact that God God has to provide the impetus to seek Him. He has to give you that motivation. 
Okay? But we can know that worshiping the true Lord is a good sign for sure. To paraphrase Warren Wiersbe, uh, people who respond to the light that they have keep searching for more light. All right, uh, let's move on to the next sentence. I, th- I think this is, this is the key understanding to this whole passage. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, in our, our first point, we looked at the fact that Lydia showed evidence that she was receptive to God's drawing her, God's tug. Now we're going to look at what is requisite for the salvation of a person according to the preponderance of Scripture, to the vast majority of stuff that you're going to come across in Scripture. You can, you can glean this out of it pretty, pretty solidly, okay? Uh, can anybody define requisite? Required. Thanks. It means necessary. It means essential. And there are two factors that leap out in the sentence. It's a real short sentence here. So, so we're going to camp out on this idea for uh, a few minutes because th- this really is main idea type stuff, okay? Uh, it's also the point where I'm going to bring in a whole lot of additional backup passages. So I want you to hang with me. If you're getting kind of, you know, uh, sleepy or whatever, stand up, shake, your, shake it out, you know, whatever you got to do. Uh, I want you with me. Okay, I want you you connected. I want you tracking because this is really important stuff that we're about to look at here, okay? First, I think this passage is a prime example because it flat out says it of the fact that God is the one who opens the heart to saving faith. God is the one who does it. And before we prove this from Scripture, though, let's discuss how it is that a person can even be receptive to God in the first place. We read scriptures this morning. We actually, we read a couple that remind us that no one is righteous, right? No one, no one does good. Not even, how many? One. No one seeks God, the psalmist wrote, quoted by Paul. The implication being that no one is or does good things on their own, of their own accord. However, however, we know that God seeks us. And God also quickens the spirit within man to enable us to seek him. Now, folks, I realize this is not what a whole lot of us necessarily uh, believe. And I know it it might rub some of us the wrong way. Um, I'm okay with that. Uh, We know that, listen, from our own limited human perspective, we know this. Each of us who is in Christ came to a moment when we accepted the truth, And from our point of view, we absolutely made a choice, right? None of you are robots, are are you? (laughs) No? You all made a choice, right? Okay, we know this. Okay. You sure nobody's a robot? (laughs) Okay. Making sure. Actually, I lost my place and they gave me a chance to look for it. Um, So, if we understand that we have made a choice, and there's no argument there. I'm not going to argue with that. Jesus said, whosoever believeth in him, right? Right? Okay, you know that one. Yeah, you better answer. Just kidding. Uh, but the question is, how does a person become a whosoever? If whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, how does one become a whosoever? What occurs... 
that makes this person capable of receiving the truth. And I think that this passage gives us the best snapshot of anywhere in the New Testament, although although it's far from the only one. But God opened Lydia's heart to listen to what Paul said. So how active is God in the process of our faith? Two words, extremely and essentially. God is extremely active in the process and progress of our faith. God is essentially active in the process and the progress of our faith. And I want to share some other passages. I want to show this is not an isolated case. In Luke 24, 45, Jesus is said to have done something specific to the disciples. Literally, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Prior to his doing so, they were not allowed to grasp. They weren't able to get their brains around what had happened to Jesus. In Matthew 11, Jesus makes another startling claim when he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The Son chooses. The Bible also says a person who is in the flesh can't grasp the things of God. This is one of those scriptures we've been reading a lot recently because it really fits into Acts. 1 Corinthians 2 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly, foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Are you sensing a theme? Even those who are born again by the Holy Spirit of God, still require more of the Lord's work in order to grow deeper in our understanding. In Ephesians 1, Paul shares what his prayer is for the church in Ephesus. He says he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. That's a gift from the Lord. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, again, something the Lord does that you may know what is the hope to which He calls you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance of the saints? So I think it's important that we remember we would never turn to Christ apart from an act of God. Why? Because it completely rules out any reason for us to take pride in ourselves for our salvation. You know, the the great Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards once wrote, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Strong quote. This is so vital to our understanding of the character of God and our own sinfulness. God deserves all the glory for our salvation. And a couple more passages that aren't aren't, going to be on the screen, but I just want to read them very quickly. You're welcome to take note. Uh, where it talks about God's sovereign election. Romans 9.16 says it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God's mercy and of God's role in our sanctification. Philippians 2.13 says it is God working in you, both to will and to work. In other words, to do right and to want to do right. That's all from God. It's for His good pleasure. 
I want you to imagine a person drowning and their body being fished out of the water by a lifeguard who proceeds to, you know, you know, do we still do the Shannon? No, not anymore. Okay, well, whatever. But they're, you know, imagine that's going on, okay? Now, they bring that person back to life. How silly would it be for that person to go, <laughs> did y'all see how well I responded to that CPR? I say all this not to downplay the fact that we do, we do make a conscious decision to follow Christ and obey Him, but I want to simply say that He is doing the work in us from start to finish. Yes, sir. Is that where he says, uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him? Yeah. There's another one. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. There's also a spot where Jesus says, when I am lifted up, all men will be drawn unto me. So there's, there's a whole lot. There's a lot of places we could go today. I'm not going, but <laughs> I want to I just make this point here and say that we do make a conscious decision to follow Christ. And it is God's work in us. It's not something we would do on our own. Uh, okay, next sub-point. If God's work in, in preparing us and opening our hearts is essential, I want you to say, I thought about that scripture too. I want, you to say, I, want, I want you to know that. If God's work in preparing us and opening our hearts is essential, what might be the other necessary ingredient? I'll tell you what, it's, it's mentioned in the other half of that sentence. Right? It says, says God opened our heart to what? To listen to what Paul was saying. What was Paul saying, you think? Sure. I'm looking for one word, two syllables. Gospel. Yes, the gospel. Yes. Pure and simple. I mean, and what do we mean by the gospel, right? What, what, what does gospel mean? Good news. Thank you. Okay. And what is the good news? I, I hope you all never get tired of this. Um, because you're going to hear a couple of scriptures a lot from this pulpit, and uh, you're going to hear the gospel pretty much every time I'm up here preaching a sermon. I'm going to give at least a short version of it. And that's because it's not just so that people that are unsaved that come to this church or that are watching online can hear the truth, because I do want that. It's also because we have to know the gospel ourselves. We have to remind ourselves. We have to, we have to remember what Jesus did, because it's not just for our justification. It's for our sanctification. It's for our survival. Okay? So if you ever go, man, he talks about that a lot. Okay, <laughs> that's all right. The gospel means good news, and what is the good news? I hope I never get tired of repeating it. For one thing, the good news is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. Amen? Okay, and that's according to the Apostle Paul, who wasn't ashamed of it, right? We shouldn't be ashamed of it either. But, but what's the basic content of the good news? We find that out from... 1 Corinthians 15, this is one of those other scriptures you're going to hear a lot, where Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, he says, if, I, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he gives the content. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, also according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for having passed on to the next life. So the gist of the good news is that Jesus Christ died for our sins, super important, and rose from the dead, all of this as prophesied by God and professed by eyewitnesses. It's the good news. Simply put, it's about who Jesus is and what God did through him. And if we accept this, the implication is that we understand that we are sinners in need of a divine Savior. And we know who he is, right? Say his name. Jesus. Mm. Now, this, this is where a lot of theologically liberal denominations and even theologically liberal professing Christians draw the line. I remember a pastor of a church I used to work in told me there were members of other faiths that were in the same place positionally as Christians before God simply because they believed sincerely in their own false religion. I do not believe that that is what the vast majority of Scripture indicates to us. I don't think it can be understood to say that. I know there's a few Scriptures that you can pull out of context and try to make it say that, but that's not, I'm just flat out, I think he's wrong. You know, there's a, there's a great passage in Romans 10 where Paul, he's quoting the Apostle Joel, uh, excuse me, the prophet Joel. It's a really well-known passage. Uh, it's often quoted, everyone who what? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Do you believe it? Well, yeah, I hope so. It's in the Bible. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, it's Scripture, but it must be taken in context. It must be understood appropriately. So, so the Apostle, Paul, speaking under the, the, under the influence, sounds a little weird, by the inspiration, by the God breathing out his word through the Apostle Paul, he says this, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The gospel is the power of of God unto salvation for those who believe. And it needs to be heard to be believed. That's why it is so important that we preach the gospel with words as well as with actions. Earlier this morning, we, we read, uh, I think Brent actually read part of the story of Cornelius from Acts chapter 10. Um, you remember the Lord, it says, the Lord took notice of his prayers and his alms, I mean, the good deeds that he was doing, and yet Cornelius was not a believer. And I think based on everything we've read, we can assume that, that God was drawing him. But the question, was he saved prior to hearing the gospel? I want you to listen to the testimony of Peter. This is from Acts chapter 11. Remember, Peter was on the roof. God had just showed him the vision, right, where, uh, with the, the animals and the sheep. Cornelius knocks on the door, and then, uh, or Cornelius' men knock on the door, and then telling the story later to the church at Jerusalem after he explains, hey, I saw the Holy Spirit come on these people, and I baptized them. After telling them all this, Peter says, and behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's 
house. Now, now, this is where we pick up a tidbit. This wasn't mentioned earlier, okay? It's not mentioned in Acts 10. But it is here in Acts chapter 11. And I think there's a reason that Peter was led to recall it here for us so, so that we'd understand the importance of the gospel. Peter goes on, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and your whole household. So was he yet saved? No. So to sum it up, the two requisite things that produce faith and faithfulness are God preparing the heart, which is the soil for the seed, and then the seed itself, which is His Word, and specifically the good news about who Jesus is and what God did through Him. So we've discussed uh, two broad ingredients in the recipe for faith and faithfulness, but what's the third? I think we find it in our last paragraph. And after she, Lydia, was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. <laughs> it's like Luke's going, Ow, you're twisting my arm. Okay, we'll go. We'll go hang out with you. You know, because um, they were homeless at that time, right? So what we're reading here is how faith turns into faithfulness, and it's about our response, our response. Now, bearing in mind our response is still the Lord's work in us, it's also, it's important evidence, right, that we have received the Holy Spirit, that we've, that we've been born again by the Spirit of God, that the gospel has really taken root in us. And friends, I'm going to ask you a question, and this is one of those questions I really want to encourage you to, to say it out loud, because I think everybody can look at that passage and know this, the answer to this question. What is the first thing that it appears Lydia did upon her heart being opened to the gospel? She was baptized. She was brought to water because they're at the river, immersed in the water, brought back up. First thing. Lydia showed immediate obedience with respect to what God calls a believer to do. This, you know, part of why the church, this church specifically, why Crossroad requires that a person have been immersed into Christ in order to become a member here is that, and I'm going to say this, I hope it doesn't stomp any toes, but if it does, just bear with me because it's the truth, okay? The Bible, this is believer's baptism, in other words, not baptizing, you know, not sprinkling babies, but actually taking people who are old enough to profess their faith and immersing them in water. Believer's baptism is unequivocally taught in Scripture. And it's a, a part of our, the command Jesus gives us to, to make disciples. It's the very first thing He says. He says, go, therefore, as you're going into the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you to do. It's, it's part of that command. So, so if you are a believer in Christ who is capable of professing Christ and you've never submitted to his command to be immersed, then I want to invite you and, and flat out challenge you to be obedient to that call before you take another step of faith. 
Faithfulness to God requires obedience. Now, once she's been baptized, then what did Lydia do? You know, it's, it's not explicitly stated, but it's, it's heavily implied that she then evangelized her family. Because the very next thing you know, they're getting baptized too. And by the way, there, there's, there's no evidence at all to suggest that the people in her house were baptized without first believing and making a profession of faith. Just, I'm putting this out there. It became a tradition later to Christian infants, but that is not a biblical practice. That is man's attempt to add to what God designed. Anyway, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty nifty to me that Lydia was not just joyful that she received salvation. I mean, she wanted to share it. And isn't that an appropriate response? Sure. I mean, if you were in a caravan that was lost in the desert and, and you, you somehow managed to wander away from the group and you found an oasis with a pool of crystal clear water that was being fed by a bubbling spring, would you keep it to yourself? I sure hope not. Some of you are like, oh, how much money did they have? No, <laughs> you'd share it. You know you would. Friends, th this is similar to our own situation. We have access to life, to eternal life. And we know what we have. So we ought to be sharing it, don't you think? We ought to be sharing it with others. That means, that means sharing Christ and His good news with others. So, so faithfulness, it looks like obedience. It looks like inviting others to know the truth. And then, then there's one more aspect that's revealed in the last part of verse 16. And before I, before I, I take you there, I, I want to share this with you. They've finally been made. Finally been made, okay? I almost got to get them Friday, but it was a little too late. Um, come Monday or Tuesday, we're going to have 2,500 business cards for this church that on the one side say, we'd like you to come. It has the church address and website and all that. On the other side, it's got a QR code, Okay? And we're going to give those to you guys to hand out to people, just random strangers if you like. But when you take your phone and you scan that QR code, it's going to take them to a just under five-minute video on our website, so they'll have access to our website, that shares the gospel very, very clearly. And the Lord may use you to save people by simply handing them a card. So I want to encourage you to know, you know, this is what we're going to have next week. It's going to be here. So I want you to take some with you. All right. The last part of verse 16. Lydia contextualized the message. Baptized, evangelized, contextualized the message that she heard, meaning, meaning she showed the interchange that had happened in her heart by applying the right response to the gospel in her own immediate personal sphere of influence. This is something we should all do. If we are truly born-again believers in Jesus Christ, then we should do this too. We should contextualize. And I think it can be described succinctly in three G's. Okay? Three G's. You can see them in Lydia's context here. She, she excitedly offers her home to the apostles as a base for operations. You know there's at least four guys here. Can you imagine saying, hey, you four guys who I don't even really know, Come use my house as a home base for a while. It's almost shocking. You know, I mean, you don't really say mi casa es su casa and mean it unless you've got some appreciation for what you've just been given. And so, so 
with her open hospitality in mind, I want us to look at the three G's and, and I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will, will help each of us apply them in our own walk of faith. Okay, so the first G is for gratitude. Gratitude. When you've been given eternal life and salvation from eternal damnation, then guys, being grateful should come naturally. I mean, knowing that, that we've done nothing and can do nothing to save ourselves, it helps keep us humble. And, and being, being thankful for the mercy of God and, and for His incredible blessings, that's really a huge motivator for the other two G's. Uh, the second that flows right out of that humility that comes from being a recipient of God's forgiveness is grace. Grace. A kind of person who embodies the word grace is going to be kind to others. They're going to show love in their, their attitudes and actions, even when, uh, maybe especially when, that person has done nothing to deserve that kindness, or maybe even the other way around. Maybe they've, they've been mean. You know, it's true that, that Lydia, Lydia was blessed by the preaching of the gospel, you know, and so one could argue that her actions were out of a sense of, you know, obligation to the preachers. But reading her words, does it come across to you like she just, you know, just feels like she should? I mean, does, does that, no, right? She seems happy to have this opportunity to bless Paul and company, you know? And so, so, so what she received from them was freely given, and what she's offering back to them is freely given. And, and by offering her home to them, she's providing the means by which they'll bless others, which flows into that third G, which is generosity. You know, a, a person who understands even, even a small bit of, of the immense gift of salvation that we've been given, they really ought to be moved to give it to others, as Lydia clearly was, you know, they, to, to give that that gift through evangelism, but also just to give in general. You know, but because her heart, her heart had been open to the gospel and she'd received the gospel, the Spirit of Christ had taken up residence in her as he does to anybody who is truly born again, right? Anybody who is, who is really genuinely believed and the, the evidence was clear. It was clear through her hospitality toward the apostles. And so, so those of us who we may not have a, a similar opportunity to open our home. We can, we can show a generous attitude in the way that we forgive others, you know, for their insults, for their offenses. And we can show generosity in how we treat people who are hostile toward us. You know, we can, we can have compassion for them. We can, we can show, show compassion to those that are in need of mercy. You know, in, in a sense... The grace and the generosity are a way in which we Christians can pay forward our gratitude for what God has done for us in this incredible gift of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we bring honor to our Heavenly Father for how He has given us new life. And not just eternally, but even, even today. If you're a Christian, you are walking in new life today. Eternal life doesn't start when you die. It started when you died. 
You're in it now, Christian. Do you understand that? You are in eternal life now. Your body is just a barrier. It's going to go away. So, friend, if you're, if you're here today and if, if, if you've, you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then, then I beg you to do so. Make a conscious decision to trust Him for your salvation. You know, you, you are not and cannot, and you, you never will be good enough for God to accept you on your own merits. But listen, He has already forgiven the sins of the world through His Son. And you can receive that forgiveness for yourself. You can, you can appropriate that, placing your faith in the saving power of Christ. And if you've done that, then your life ought to show it. Now, if you're here today and you've never been obedient to Christ, if you've never confessed Him as as the Lord and Savior and been baptized as the Word teaches, you need to do that. That's not optional. We're commanded to do that. And if you've done that, but you're like, you know what, I'm really uh, not walking with the Lord. Obedience is something you need to do. Get on it. And one of the best ways to get on it is to become a part of a truly committed body of believers. And this community here is a truly committed body of believers, and we want to to draw more people in. We want to be, uh, I think we have something good here, and we want to share it. I'll tell you, it's really neat when, uh, if if you've ever experienced it in this body, if you've been sick, you've probably had people call and say, hey, can we bring you meals? You know, if you've ever been down on on your, uh, you know, downing your, your, your attitude or your heart and you need someone to cheer you up, there's people here willing to do that. That's part of being the body of Christ. So you have that opportunity today also. And you know, if you just want to ask for prayer, um, I, I don't mean to make that sound like, hey, if you just want to do it. No, guys, that's a big thing. It takes guts. You know, if you want to ask for prayer, if there's something that the Holy Spirit is, is nudging you and you're like, man, I'm really struggling with this, Come up, let us lay hands on you and pray. And when I I say us, I don't just mean the church leadership. I mean everybody around you will be happy to come up and lay their hands on you and pray with you. This is is what we're here for, is to honor God and love Him, to love one another. That's why we're here. Love God, love others, serve the least, reach the lost. Um, Would you bow with me? And we'll pray and then we'll close out with uh, an invitation. Father God, uh, we thank you for the chance to be here and to be able to, to worship you, Lord, through song, but more importantly, to worship you with our lives by listening to your word and, and applying it in our lives. God, we ask that you help us to remember that it all depends on you while still uh, striving as though it depended on us because that's how you work in us, God. Uh, we pray, Father, that you open our eyes to your truth, open our hearts to be more receptive to the things that you want us to do and say and, and even think. Father, I ask that uh, as we, we close, that if there's anybody here who, who knows that they need to receive Christ uh, to do so, and if they've not been baptized to do so, and if they want to join this body, Lord, might you, uh, might you move in them to, to make that choice today. And Father God, I'm just thinking I'm going to be on the drums, I guess, so uh, if you can um, just work through Dave or whoever comes up, Father, let it, be a, let it be a time where your Holy Spirit speaks to us and we listen and we obey.
in St. Christ's name.